This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. I'm Amir Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State. And this week, I'm joined by my illustrious co-host, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York, and Lindsay Gibbs, Sports Reporter at Think Progress in Washington, D.C., And this week on the show, we're going to be talking about Conrad Manwaring and the mounting cases against him and allegations of abuse mounting against him as a track and field coach at UCLA, as well as before that. Shireen is also going to chat with soccer expert extraordinaire Meg Linehan. And then also my co-hosts are going to indulge me in my curiosity about sports mascots. But before we get into all that, Lindsay, you are back from Vegas where you were at All-Star. I Am mean, I? Am I really back? <laughs> it looked like you had a phenomenal time and you were on hand for what looked to be like a fairly good All-Star weekend. What was it like? Yeah, it was incredible. Vegas just did such a good job of really showing out. I mean, one of my favorite things was the marketing. So we talk a lot about the show, the marketing of female athletes. And from the second you landed in Vegas, everywhere you looked, there were posters and billboards and signs about All Star. And one of my favorite things, and I wrote about this for Think Progress this week, was like there were no motivational... sayings or mm. like support women right. you know like things porn. like they weren't pink you know it was literally just hi the best women in the world are playing come watch do you know what i mean like it was just very like it was like how you would sell a men's sport and i just there was something really refreshing about that and it worked so it was really fun to me the best story of the weekend was erica wheeler and who is an undrafted player who went on to you know make the all-star team and then won all-star mvp and i was lucky enough i was actually there doing a feature on her for the ringer anyways and this was before she won mvp so that went up this week as well and you know just gonna keep self-promoting all my stories but really her story is remarkable hope to have her on the podcast soon. And yeah, I am working on getting a w- big WNBA hot take up. It will come sometime soon. Schedules are hard. But yeah, this WNBA season, I'm so excited for the second half. So next, we want to talk about a case that is developing or, or coming to light dealing with sexual abuse allegations in track and field. And I hadn't heard about this. And the more I started to read about it, I was like, why haven't I heard about this? So we need to talk a little bit about it. And yeah, so Brenda, what can you tell us about about this case? 
So trigger warning for sexual assault discussion here and particularly of minors before we start. So this week, there were shocking and revolting revelations that come out of an 18-month investigation about track and field coach and former athlete Conrad Mainwaring. And there's two articles in particular we can link to the show notes, one from ESPN and one from Sports Illustrated. I'm sure there's going to be many more. Mainwaring is accused of abusing at least 41 athletes over 40 years. He did so. It's just, it's absolutely devastating. He did so on sort of by preying on young men's dreams of Olympic appearances, right? Of getting to the Olympics, of, of, becoming an Olympic champion. And there's a couple of athletes who haven't spoke at, spoken out quite yet who he did coach that were Olympic successes, actually. He competed for Antigua and Barbuda. He is a former hurdler, and he appeared once at the 1976 Summer Olympics in Montreal in the men's 110-meter hurdles. But he grew up in England, and the first allegations stretch back to that time. He also worked as a camp counselor, university administrator, namely for some really big places like Caltech, UCLA, Syracuse. Uh, He wasn't officially. So one of the things to talk about are these institutions that have failed these young men, right? He was allowed to kind of have these training sessions in some of these places without being a former employee, like UCLA, for example. So we can talk about that. He was arrested on June 19th, um, so a couple of months ago in L.A., on the charge that he sexually molested one of his athletes in 2016. Many of these have passed the statute of limitations, so it's going with the most recent cases. He pled not guilty and remained in custody with bail at $100,000. Since then, he's been accused by dozens of athletes, as I said, including some of the summer boys' athletic camps in Massachusetts. There are many, many young men who have come forward. And just to wrap it up here, then, you know, the stories are really heartbreaking and, and, and we can, you know, talk about that. He basically convinced these young men that the molestation was part of training them, toughening them up and things like that. And so they really was preying on these dreams and and sort of setting them up for this in a very particular way that repeated over and over. And I just want to turn the discussion a little bit to the institutions too that have failed them because this Mm -hmm. is about media and institutions as well. So that's my intro to this really painful topic. It is, and it immediately brings me right back, right to Nasser. Like I'm thinking yeah. about the preying on, right, and and particularly the relationship, the trust, the admiration that aspiring athletes have for their coaches, and their coaches representing the possibility for these kind of Olympic dreams or just you know elite dreams, and and that particular space, Linz. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of things that really stuck out to me that remind me of similar cases. Number one, a lot of this was done under the guise of, you know, physiotherapy, you know, or medical treatment or massages. And, you know, so it kind of points to how vulnerable, you know, especially younger people are in these situations and just how education needs to be better around that. And, you know, he also, there was a quote in there that thought that he preyed on heterosexual 
men and boys because they would be too ashamed to come forward about the homosexual nature. Of course, it wasn't. There was nothing sexual about it. It was abuse, you know. But so I think that that those two things really, really stuck out to me because it's just so manipulative. It's so coercive. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he had a problem. He knew it was wrong. And he knew how to kind of manipulate everyone in his realm in order to stay silent. It seems like he preyed on men who lacked father figures, men who were, you know, overly ambitious. There was a, the mo- one of the more recent ones was, you know, a, someone who was practicing at the track at UCLA, but wasn't a US- UCLA track athlete, but was from another country and trying to make it to the track team in the Olympic track team in his country. And so, you know, these people almost operating outside these institutions while using the clout of the Olympics, while using the clout of the few Olympians that he coached to, you know, prey on dreams and vulnerability. And, you know, there's towards the end of the article, you know, when he's confronted with it by some of these men later in their life, you know, he admits it and he talks about how troubled he is. And then he goes on and continues to abuse, right? So even that, even his confessions have been manipulative. And that was staggering. And the part I will, I think, always remember from reading this story, which just kudos to Outside the Lines. This is just phenomenal reporting. I don't even know if I can say this. (laughs) Like, it's that he was abusing one of these young men while they were watching coverage of the Jerry Sandusky trial. And that just like, to me, whew, God, that stuck with me. And yeah, so those are kind of all my thoughts. They're jumbled. I think there is more when you talk about the institutions. You're right, Brenda. I think for me, it's interesting, though, how he kind of operated outside of these, you know, but still connected, right? He was still on the UCLA track. So he still had that clout. And it just shows how poor our the oversight is of these things and how easily these Olympic dreams can be manipulated. Right, certainly. And, and like you said, while he's operating at the margins of the institution, part of what he's using is the clout of the institutions themselves. And yeah, no, that Sandusky part really was like gobsmacked me, but it also made me think, you know, I think we talked a lot with Michigan State, with Nasser, and we said, well, why at first, early on, you know, why isn't there coverage relative to what we saw at Penn State with Sandusky? And, you know, this great point that, you know, I've heard Jess make, I've heard Lindsay make, you know, that is it's been really poignant point, which is it's not, it's not ever about the victims. It's not about the victims, right? And the coverage of Penn State didn't care, didn't focus on the male victims of Sandusky. A lot of it was framed around what it did to this storied program and this storied coach and et cetera, et cetera. And I couldn't help but think of that again when hearing this case. Because I mean, like Lindsay said, kudos to Outside the Lines. This is um, tremendous reporting. Um, I saw it picked up by SI, but generally I haven't heard about it. And it really think makes me think about like, well, what is the narrative that would be crafted, you know, around this? And it doesn't have the same kind of bait as getting a Joe Pa, getting Penn State. And it makes me really think about 
all of the other kind of cases of abuse that have flown under the radar. And like Lindsay has done such tremendous reporting, like bringing some of them up, connecting, you know, how USA Gymnastics is, is operating with speed skating, right? With cases that we've seen in judo. Um, but it just is scary, right? That, that it's just scary. It's just, yeah. Bren or Linz. Yeah, I just wanted really quick, to me, it puts into perspective how angry and frustrated I got during the Nasser hearings when a point was brought up all the time that these were women, which was why nothing was done. Mm. And you know what I mean? And it was this weird thing where people were all of a sudden like, well, we made such a big deal about the Jerry Sandusky thing because they were young boys, but these were women, you know, young girls. So, you know, sexism was wielded in this very strange way that never felt right to me. Mm. And I think, you know, Jess talking about how the reason that we cared about Joe Paterno's legacy was because that was why the media harped on to the Sandusky media eventually harped on to Nasser primarily because it was, you know, Allie Raceman, you know, and these Olympic gymnasts. If they hadn't had those names, I don't think that story would have gotten nearly the coverage. And if they hadn't, you know, had that, the video where it was just like girl after girls testifying. Yeah. And once again, I don't even think that video would have gotten that much attention. If, right. if, if like if you hadn't had Mikhail, you know, these right, Olympic exactly. champions as part of it. And then also though, we hear so much about sexual where does the sexual abuse of boys and men fit into the Me Too conversation? And there are a lot of people who like to try and we know that it's not talked about enough, right? And we know that it's hard, even harder for male survivors to come forward than it is for female survivors. But there's this weird divide that often comes up. And for me, something that got me was a lot of these men started talking about this and started joining together after the Me Too movement, after seeing the Jim, uh, you know, Nasser survivors come forward. And so it reminded me more that like, there is much more kinship among survivors, no matter the gender, than a lot of these memes and, you know, tweets that go along, you know, <laughs> that are often carried out this narrative that tries to divide survivors as opposed to thinking about how much strength that everyone can gain from each other. Yeah, I think that is like such an important conversation to have. And we talked about it at the time on the show when we were doing Ohio State stuff. And we were thinking about, and a lot of the Ohio State male wrestlers had said they were inspired by the Nasser case and and the women coming forward. I don't know that it's harder for men than women to come forward. I actually don't. I, I don't agree with that as a generalization. You know what I mean? Because I think there's a tendency to believe young men, actually, in a way that there's not young women. It doesn't mean they're treated well. Do you know what I'm saying? But I I think there's a kind of imperative where people are like, well, a young man would never make that up, right? He he would never want to admit that. So I think there's like different nuances there that are interesting to tease out. But I think the idea that they're more kinship there and the way they try to divide the two is like super important. And so, Linz, when you say you know, how this was wielded to divide the two sets of victims. I just think that's so important and it's not getting nearly enough attention as it deserves. And I just wanted to make one other point about the institutions, which is that universities regulate the hell out of professors. Like we have to report how many hours we spend with students. Our office doors have to be open. Like we, and I'm saying that's all fine. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not complaining. I'm saying, why aren't athletics, you know, subject to the same kind of scrutiny? 
And I find that to be so key in these particular cases. I'm not saying that sexual abuse doesn't happen in other departments or other units of the university, but not on the scale that we've seen with athletics. They ha- they would never get away with it. Never. So, and like also, I feel like a lot of that, you know, Bren goes to this kind of way we think of noble dreams, like what, what counts as a noble dream, like what price are you willing to pay, right? And I feel like there's this thing about sports and athletics in particular, where we open up so much access and to young athletes who are aspiring. Coaches are indebted with all this trust from parents if they can be seen as a vehicle to take their kids somewhere. There's all this, I think, trust and hope and stuff like that that makes it really ripe for mentorship, for coaching, you know, and for great coaching, but also for it to go badly, especially because it's about physicality. It's there's a lot of coaches, especially at the youth level, who get very close to, especially in track, get very close to the you know, high school students they're training and are constantly thinking about their body or touching, you know, I just feel like it opens up a space that's really ripe in a way that some other spaces aren't, you know, don't have that. Like I'm not sitting here with my students and talking about what they're consuming or how they're looking that day. Like it's, it's, but I, I feel like I remember my best friend who's a elite track runner and even from middle school, I was like the access and the personal connection she has with her coaches because it's believed that they are going to help her get to this level was unlike any other adult relationship that I had in my life. And so I just, you know, thinking about abuse in sports specifically, like we know that abuse we see in the Catholic church, right? Like we see it in spaces. It's not just in sports by any means, but I think it's really fruitful to think through these institutions around sport that govern sport, thinking what are the possibilities, what creates these particular cases within athletics. And I think a lot of that requires unpacking the way that we think about and revere sports in the first place. Lynn's and this bullshit that we like revere from like these football coaches and these, you know, everyone around discipline and, you know, and, and how the ways that they wield self-discipline is like a tool of abuse almost. And like one of the things that this abuser would say to his victims was like, you must abstain from sex with women in order to achieve like maximum, you know, athletic performance. And then that, of course, left him much more vulnerable to his abuse. And not saying that every coach that has rules like that is abusive, but the way we mythologize, right? And like, hold up this stuff. It's just to me, it's, it's a little bit part of the same conversation. Because if they had never heard any of that bullshit, you know, lifted up on SportsCenter or anything like that, then they might not have bought into it. It, right when this other guy was telling them well we will certainly be keeping an eye on this case as it continues to proceed next up shireen interviews women's soccer expert meg linehan hello flamethrowers i am so excited about our interview today with the amazing and brilliant meg linehan who is the U.S. Women's National Team slash NWSL slash Women's Soccer staff writer 
at The Athletic. Meg is the Yoda of all things women's soccer, and we are so happy she can be on the show today. Hello, Meg. Hello, how are you? I am so happy to be talking to you because I have a bunch of questions for you. Okay. Let's start with Jill Ellis leaving yes. because that's that's literally burning up, pun intended, everyone's list of questions to talk about. What's going on there? Yeah, I think so, you know, in France, she kind of danced around this, like there were actually a couple of questions during media availabilities at one of the press conferences. And she just kind of like, winked out at the group of us and was like, you guys know more about that than I do right now. Obviously, like they had an option for her to extend her contract through the 2020 Olympics. But just in terms of what she said, as the news came down that she's stepping away after the victory tour, she looks at the Olympics as instead of the second part of this major cycle that when we talk about women's soccer cycles, it's always World Cup followed by Olympics. And that's kind of your primary four-year cycle. And instead, she's trying to say, like, if I step away now, and whoever they get in that takes over my role, they get a major tournament before the 2023 World Cup to actually, like, get some major tournament experience, get a chance with this team. And actually, you know, the roster, I think, is going to look very different between the 2020 Olympics and the 2023 World Cup. And this gives this person a chance not just to to have some time with the veterans that may or may not be making it through that 2023 tournament, but also, you know, seeing young talent like someone like Mal Pugh, Rose Lavelle, those players in a major tournament before you're actually heading into prep for the next World Cup. So I don't think a lot of us were necessarily surprised. Like she's won back-to-back World Cups. She, you know, and she even said, like, this is not a job that you stay in for 10 years, right? Like, ultimately, you need someone to step in and, and take this team to the next evolution of what it's going to look like in order to compete on a world stage, because I think the next World Cup is going to be a very different tournament. I think this was the last one where the US had any sort of left in advantage in terms of, you know, just momentum from the history of the team and, and having that edge in, in investment. 2023 is going to be a completely different thing. And I think it does make sense to have someone new step in and say, okay, how do we evolve this team to compete against Europe long term? Oh, for sure. And I think that's really important that she understands that happens because you were saying it's not a you know role that we stand forever or 10 years. Right. But I'm like, if you're, right. I mean, we saw what happened in Spain and their federation. Like, <laughs> I, know. That, I mean, but that's exactly it. There's a stagnation and a lack of development, which is she's she's talking about. Just as a, a question that was sort of occurring to me, do you think, because there was a lot of not criticism, but there was a lot of feelings during the World Cup about her rosters and this, and people were really questioning her judgment. What are you? What's your take on that? Because I actually said that I thought she was this quiet genius who did her homework. And it was an unpopular opinion, for sure. But what were your thoughts about that? Did Jill Ellis get criticism? I understand everyone's anxiety and tension before matches. Like, I get that. But did <laughs> yeah. you? what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think a lot of us were questioning some of the substitution and starting 11 decisions, right? Like Lindsey Rand not being in that starting 11 was definitely, I mean, that's your reigning NWSL player of the year. But at the same time, like we, we also know NWSL form never really mattered to Jill Ellis. Like that was never any, like, if you look at like top five things that seem to influence her decisions in terms of rosters, in terms of, you know, who's in form and who's not, NWSL play was never at the top of that list 
over the entire span. Like, yes, Jess McDonald made that roster in part because Jill Ellis saw her in the NWSL postseason in person and said, okay, I get it. Like, that's someone I need to have on this team. It did, like, there were times where NWSL did influence, but on the whole, I, I don't think that her roster decisions were like, I mean, Allie Krieger making this roster, I, I don't think had a huge amount to do with NWSL play. I think it was just because Ellis knew who Krieger was as a player and what she could bring. So putting that aside. Which is which is interesting I, I think, because the whole roster plays for the NWSL. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. But I think it's always, I mean, part of the difficulty in covering this team is you're trying to look at what Ellis is doing and you're only seeing maybe 10% of what goes on for this team. You're looking at friendlies, which don't always tell you a lot about the team. You're looking at her roster decisions. And then like, yes, you have all this NWSL data to try to help you figure out what's going on, but you're not seeing the practices. You're not having the conversations that Jill Ellis is having with those players. You're not in the locker room, right? Like you're trying to analyze stuff and you're only getting such a small piece of that picture. So then I think the other thing that was really important that only came out after the World Cup is, I don't know if you saw saw the story that was in, I think it was The Guardian about Don Scott, who's their fitness coach, and the fact that they actually tracked periods for this team. That actually influenced roster and starting 11 decisions in terms of trying to make sure that players were at peak physical condition. So if someone was about to start their period and, and had like, I mean, like scientifically, it affects your joints, it affects all these things. If they felt that player was at risk, that player didn't play. Wow. I did see that. And I so, thought about how interesting it was that was made, made its way into. And that. no other team is no. doing that at this point. Like it's, it's only U.S. national team. And it sounds like that's going to filter into, you know, other people's decision making. But that was a factor. And again, like there was no visibility to that at the time during the World Cup. So like we're just sitting at games and, you know, it's a heat wave in France, right? So we're just sitting there and it's, God, that Spain game, like there's no sub, there's no sub, there's no sub. And and she's in the press conference, Alice is saying like, well, I thought they grew into the game and everybody's kind of like, are we at the same, same yeah. game? But in the big picture though, like I think Jill Ellis outcoached Pretty much everyone. I will agree with you. I will totally agree with you there. Like Spain was really the only game where you could argue maybe like Spain came with a game plan to play against the United States and they, they absolutely got that right. But in the end, obviously, you know, you have Megan (laughs) doing Megan, but, but I do think that Jill, like she outcoached Phil Neville. Oh God. Yes. Oh God. Yes. (laughs) Right. And I think she like there were challenges in that final, but I think ultimately she was the better coach. Like, I think there was really only one game that you could have a question about Jill Ellis. But for that Spain game, like they still won. I don't think that that result was ever going to be really in question in this edition of the tournament. I think in 2023, Spain might be a different that might be a different result in 2023. But at this point, like Ellis outcoached pretty much everyone in that tournament that she went up against. So, yeah, I think like. Ultimately, yes, there have been, and if you look at the entire history of this national team, but like the one failure that Jill Ellis encountered, which was the 2016 Olympics, she not like, not only like took it in as feedback and said like, okay, I've got to change everything. Like she basically blew up the fundamentals of that team in order to, to compensate for being beaten at the Olympics and then made it happen by the 2019 World Cup. 
Absolutely. But I mean, I was a bit, you know, I wasn't concerned because my priority was never the US women's national team, like personally speaking, and you know this, but she believes didn't go well for the United States. And I mean, at that point, I'm like, okay, she so between January, February, and June, she was working really hard, because I also think that strategically, she had, you know, checked out competition and sort of understood. And she has this very quiet confidence about her that I appreciated. Like she just was like, it's almost I'm going to give no fucks kind of attitude, but in a very quiet way. So she just ran her hustle. And I mean, the proof is in the pudding because we know that you can have a very strong team. But if you don't have someone coaching in synchronicity with you, like IE England, it's not gonna manifest in the way you want it to. So no, I appreciate your thoughts on that. And I wanted to ask about what's next for the USSF. Like what's going on there now? You know, and so first <laughs> their letter. They have to hire <laughs> Yeah. So first they have to hire a general manager, right, for this for this program. And in theory it does sound like it's gonna be Kate Markgraf, who obviously, you know, was on this this team and has continued to pay attention to them simply because she she covers the team for ESPN. And it sounds like that is imminent. And Kate Markgraf's name is the only name that has ever been linked to this position. So it seems pretty much like a lock at this point. And then Kate Markgraf is going to be the one who leads the hiring search for the next head coach. And thanks to her time with ESPN, she's already kind of revealed her preferred shortlist for the next head coaching of the U S national team. And she's got four people at least. And I'm sure like they're going to look wider than this short list. Right. But like in terms of what she's thinking, she's already revealed it. So it's three NWSL coaches, one college coach that college coaches, uh, Mark Gregorian from FSU, who has a great track record in terms of finding international talent to bring to FSU. So good scouting system likes developing young talent, all that kind of stuff. From the NWSL side, there are three names. It's Paul Riley, head coach of North Carolina Courage, Flacco Andonofsky, head coach of Rain FC, and Laura Harvey, head coach of Utah Royals FC. Interesting. Laura Harvey, the, I just think, is is a very fascinating person and is very o- vocal as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just I, I talked to her after that Sky Blue game when Utah Royals were out in town, and, and she just basically talked to me about NWSL for 15 minutes and did not hold back. So she's definitely one of the people who, like, I've covered her since day one in NWSL. She is absolutely one of my favorite people to talk to in the world of women's soccer. I think she's definitely qualified. I think the question for her is, you know, she doesn't always like the draft from an NWSL point of view. She likes trade. She likes acquiring older players. And, you know, for U.S. national team, I think you got to be tuned in a little bit with the the youth system, with the college game, that sort of thing. And that's not to say that she couldn't do it, but historically, we have not necessarily seen that from her. I think it's also something to do with her own background. Like she's British, yeah. so like yeah. the system is completely different. They don't right. have this draft idea to work from. That right. they rely heavily on development leagues and you know youth youth development programs, which is not what happens here. Yes. So I think that's, but I actually have, I really, we actually quoted you last week on our discussion because the, the piece you wrote and about Laura Harvey talking about, and I would love for you to get into this a little bit about not picking up enough momentum 
post World Cup, like NWSL. And I love that Laura Harvey, Harvey is out there doing her job. Her job is to amplify that. And that's what she's doing. Yeah, so no. like, that was super cool. And when you spoke with her about that, like you said, she, she didn't let anything slide. (laughs) (laughs) She went, she went off. She's not capable of letting anything slide. (laughs) She, she only wants to, I mean, and you know, she's been around this week since day one and, you know, we're just standing on a field (laughs) at your sack at, you know, Rutgers university outside of, I mean, it's so impossible to get to these games from New York city. Right. And it's the first game back from the world cup. The attendance for sky blue is good. Obviously they got better attendance following once all the the U.S. players returned. They've been selling out games now. But, you know, I think that there is this kind of frustration within the league of everybody knows there's going to be a bump, right? Everybody knows. What is the actual plan from a league level? And that's that's the conversation that she had is that, you know, there haven't been any calls from this league point of view to say, okay, like this team is doing this, this team is doing this, but what are we doing from a national point of view to actually grow? This league just... You know, Megan Rapinoe's on television talking about it. Alex Morgan is talking about it. The SB is like, we have this platform and there's no way for us to actually take advantage of it. And I, I think that's a frustration that I've seen from a lot of different places, just in terms of, I think the parade was such a perfect example of it because you have this float at the very start of the parade that's an NWSL float and there's nothing on it that says NWSL. It's Amanda Duffy. <laughs> Who does not have, like, and, you know, Amanda's the president of the league, but I think if you put her in a lineup for most NWSL fans, they would not know who she is, right? Like, the people on this parade route largely are not NWSL fans, so exactly. it was... And they it, could be, though. Right, exactly. And I think that's why it was really reassuring to see that Budweiser had put some money into it to have all these posters along the parade route. Like, everything that I've seen from Budweiser, and I, I had another article last week, too, was about sponsorships. And I talked to Monica Rusky, who is the VP of marketing from Budweiser. And I mean, I was on the phone with her for probably half an hour. And everything she said about how they're going to work to promote this league was so encouraging just because it's work that the league doesn't seem to be doing itself. So to actually have some external money coming in and, and someone who says like, okay, you know, we've done this before. Like we do this for NHL, for for MLB, for all these other teams. Like they don't have to reinvent no, the totally wheel. totally true. Right. <laughs> Speaking of fans and people that could be fans, can you give us a bit of insight into what people should be paying attention to for the rest of the regular season and not only the Thorns that you know I stand? So, I mean, if people want to go ahead and just be Portland (laughs) Thorns fans, that's totally fine with me. But I'm actually heading out to Portland next week. So I'm very excited about that. I love that place so much. Like, and even just seeing the return of the players, like they had like a celebration for Adriana French, for Horan and for Tobin Heath and Emily Sonnet. And Tobin Heath's smile when she's on the pitch at Providence Park is like what I want to aspire to in life goals just for happiness. Like they just look like they're having so much fun and they're so damn good. So that's my spiel on thorns. What should our listeners look out for? People that might not have been NWSL fans previously, but want to get into it. Yeah. So I think this is actually a really great season to come into this league and to actually watch it because right at the moment, the top of the table is extremely tight. Like top four teams make the playoffs. We've got about nine weeks of the season left. So Portland is actually at the top of the table right now. They have a one point lead over North Carolina Courage who won the Shield and Championship last year. And then Chicago Red Stars are in the mix. Washington Spirit are in the mix. They were not a great team last year. They've been like super successful this year. Rain FC are in the mix. Houston is still in the mix. Utah is still in the mix. Like 
there are so many teams that could potentially still make the playoffs. It's been very tight in that sort of middle of the pack. But now, like, North Carolina was not looking super great at the start of the season, and they went on this five-game unbeaten streak. Like, I think the plot lines for the back half of this year where everybody is really fighting to make a playoff spot, and we've had some crazy results. Like, Orlando, who has not really been great, like, Marta came back from the World Cup and then basically was like, I'm going to go to Portland and I'm going to do everything humanly possible to make sure we don't lose in Portland. Like she actually just talked to her out in Orlando and she was like, I love playing in Portland because that crowd just gives me some, I feed off of that crowd and I want to, I want to play my best in front of a crowd like that. And it turned into this like absolutely bonkers back and forth, like a ton of goals and stoppage time. And and, like (laughs) with like basically the last play of the game, Portland won that game. Yeah. And I think that's like the best possible advertisement for the league right yeah. now. It's just that these games that are, have been, especially on national television through this new ESPN deal, like they've all been crazy. Yeah. It's been, it's been, so, that, that match was like incredible. Like it was just, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and I think the nice thing about NWSL and, and I've always said this is it's one of the easiest, like it's the most accessible women's professional soccer league in the world. Like I, I'm, I feel pretty confident in saying that, like, the games are free to stream. If you're international, they're on the league website and the league app. If you're in the U.S., like, yes, there's the ESPN deal. Everything else is on Yahoo Sports for free. All the highlights are immediately on Twitter, it, both in-game and, you know, like the actual highlight package are immediately online. All the players are on social media. Like, it's very easy to follow. So I do think that, and I've been trying to, like, actually enable people, like, people have been tweeting me to be like, hey, I'm going to go to a game for the first time ever. What should I know? So like, I can't do that with everyone, but like, you know, I do think that if you have a team that is relatively close to you, like, A, it's not expensive to get to an NWSL game. I mean, you look at the ticket prices for that, even compared to MLS or like, you know, we have all these European men's teams coming out for all of their preseason stuff like ICC, like it's still cheaper to go to an NWSL game. The, the level of play, especially now with all the players back from the World Cup is so high it's so easy to, to follow it or watch it. And all of these numbers are so important for this league that if you do get into it and you, you start going more consistently, like it's a win-win for everyone. For sure. That's thank you so much for being on with us, Meg, where can our listeners find your work? So I'm at the athletic in theory. I'm still currently the only full-time women's soccer writer in the U S who only works on women's soccer. Like there are plenty of full-time soccer writers, but I think I'm still the only one that is only focused on women's soccer hundred percent full-time with like benefits and and all the joys of full-time employment. (laughs) So I write for the athletic. So that's at the athletic soccer. It's just theathletic.com, And you can follow my work either like via my profile, or you can also follow the NWSL as a league, the U S national team as a team. And then yeah, I'm on Twitter at it's Meg Linehan. And yeah. Awesome. So I'm actually, I'm heading to a Rain FC Portland Thorns grudge match <laughs> next week and then going down to Portland for Portland, North Carolina grudge awesome. match. So those are two, like, t- that's two games that are going to like heavily influence the standings. For sure. And for sure. Because Portland were the runners two, like, up too last year. They lost to the courage. Yeah. yeah. Right. And North Carolina is going to host the championship this year on October 27th. And they obviously want to be in it. And that could be. Like that team could be in their fourth 
championship essentially because before they were in North Carolina, they were the Western New York Flash and they won in their final season the championship and they just have continuously gone to the championship every year. They're just crazy good. Anyways, thanks again for being on the show. We're just so happy to have you here. You're welcome anytime. And thank you for all this awesome information. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all. I saw an interesting note the other day that the Phillies are suing, are locked in a court battle to retain ownership of their mascot, the Philly Fanatic. Now, it caught my eye because I have a particularly scarring incident that happened with the Fanatic one Puerto Rican day parade, <laughs> like my first summer in Philly, <laughs> that has made me perpetually weary of the Fanatic. So anytime I see it in the news, I'm like, "Who? what happened now? But when I click this... <laughs> It was not that the, you know, fanatic was running crazy around the streets of Philadelphia, smothering people in that greenness, but that they were actually fighting to retain control. In the lawsuit, basically, it goes back to a dispute from the late 70s. Sure. (laughs) When the mascot costume was created. And in the lawsuit, the Phillies say that in 1984, they paid $215,000 for the rights to the fanatic costume quote unquote forever but <laughs> I'm a, the new york based no i know it's but the new york based company <laughs> that owns this has basically tried to terminate agreement saying that they copyrighted the character <laughs> and that it expired and they might renegotiate if the Phillies start paying them money. So right now they're locked in this like battle. And I thought this is so absurd. And then I thought, why do we have mascots anyway? Mm -hmm. So I want to have a conversation about mascots in sport. Where'd they come from? You know, certainly I think about them in terms of some of the ones that are just like definitely racist, like say Chief Wahoo. I think about the gendering of mascots. Like I think about, when Alexis was playing at Baylor and it was like Baylor Bears and then the women's team was like the Lady Bears and the mascot just put a pink bow on its head. Mm. And it's like, <laughs> but bears are women. And like bears can, bears aren't je- like that's not okay. And and, you know, certainly I'm scarred not only by the fanatic, but I was absolutely scarred by <laughs> mascots like the Minutemen growing up and and the LaSalle the explorer at LaSalle like basically white men in like mascot suits like that as a mascot was like particularly a lot for me and then there's some funny mascots out there like uh University of California Santa Cruz whose mascot is Sammy the banana slug so there's just a lot there's just a lot with mascots and they're always there in the sport and at the periphery of it or like doing halftime dunk contests or whatever and I just wanted to maybe think about why 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 are mascots a thing Brent I think there's actually, I mean, I don't, I think mascots are really emerging at the moment when sports are becoming national and professionalized. Right. And they tend to reflect a regional connection. So if it's motor, you know, if it's like the Pistons, you know, about Mm -hmm. Detroit, it's supposed to at least theoretically have some like sort of stake a claim 
to where the team is from. And convey and a certain that. value, right? Like so Definitely. Others convey a certain value, especially Native American mascot trait, right? The idea that somehow it's a throwback to a spiritual warrior yeah. something that is totally anachronistic. Or the qualities are tough and, you know, that's why we also get like a right. lot of animals. Right. Um, tigers, bears, exactly. lions. Exactly. So, so it's a sort of masculinizing thing. I do want to talk about my most hated mascot, which is the Texas Rangers, for a minute and mention we're recording this the morning after a deadly shooting in El Paso, Texas, perpetrated by a white supremacist who aims to rid Texas of Mexican influences. That pretty much describes the Texas Rangers. They killed thousands of people. Most notably, they were about border control in the 1820s, because if most people don't know, the Mexican-U.S. border actually wasn't established until 1920, which has to do with prohibition, right? And so these are vigilante groups that were formed in the 1820s to fight Cherokee and Comanche indigenous peoples, and then to move on to attacking people they identified as either Mexican, African, American, Afro-Mexican, or indigenous. These are like basically terrorists. And, and Texas is just like, yeah, that's that's cool. That represents us. And you know what, Texans, I know that you're not all like that. You know what I mean? And so it really just sucks, in my opinion, that that's, that's connected with like baseball and sports. So I just want to mention that like I would burn every day and twice on Sunday the Texas Rangers. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. And I think it connects to like my unease about yes. like the Minutemen. Like, yes. Minutemen, okay, like the American Revolution, but like the LaSalle Ugh. Explorers. And I'm like, what you call exploring could also be called, you know, yeah. you're a bit colonial. Occupying and pillaging. So, exactly. And so, like, the, you know, when you get into the mascot suit and it's like this, like, is literally just like an old time white dude with like a little ponytail. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, yo, this is really trippy and terrifying. Yeah. Uh, First of all, Lynn? I just want to say I love having this conversation with professors because you are all much more <laughs> academic about this than I am. I'm like, they're creepy and weird and I don't like them. <laughs> That's like my thoughts on mascots. Uh, But no, I mean, look, first of all, I just never been a big mascot person. Never thought it would be fun to have my picture taken with one. Like, I don't really like it when they come up to me at games. Like, I just, even when they're just like, you know, a panther or something. Like, ah, I just don't, I don't want to, I don't go away. But I think for me, a moment of realizing like, whoa, this is all a lot was I was covering the first two rounds of the women's NCAA tournament a couple of years ago. And it was in Maryland because the the teams host the first two rounds and they were playing the West Virginia Mountaineers. And so next to me was just this mascot carrying a rifle and like doing all this stuff with the rifle. Like they just have a prop rifle. And I was sitting at the very edge of the media seats. So it was literally like right next to this rifle and these cheerleaders. And I was just like, this is not. Uh, This is distracting. Honestly, I'm a little distracted by the fucking rifle. And I know it's not loaded, but like, we're just, you know, and like you you Google it. It's like, what is a mountaineer? A person in a buckskin and coonskin cap carrying a rifle. Like, why? 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 (laughs) Why? 
right. And even like, like I'm good. when we just I'm put good. down the rifle, it's just very weird to have like on one side you have the terrapin turtle, which is just like a turtle. <laughs> and then like on the other side you have a rifle. And like these are supposed to like I don't uh, like I just <laughs> that was weird and I'll never yeah. stop thinking about that. And, oh, no, God. it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And like, and then like when you start digging into some, like why some of these places got, like, I think about this with Penn State all the time because I moved here and I'm always like a Nittany <laughs> Lion. And I was like, what is a Nittany Lion? Yeah. Like, yeah. and no. do you know what it is? So <laughs> we have a mountain here called Mount Nittany. Okay. And back in the beginning of the 20th century, like, I think it was like 1904-5 or whatever, 1910, Penn State was going to play Princeton. And Princeton had, you know, the fierce Princeton Tiger. Um, and so somebody on <laughs> this team fierce. said to – All right. Yeah. So then they <laughs> – so then they said, well, we have the Nittany Lions who've never been beaten in a like fight and they're so strong and they're not like regular lions. He just used Nittany from the damn mountain. So a Nittany Lion is just a lion <laughs> from Mount Nittany. And I literally spent a year and a half of my life living here in State College, like in the in the shadow of Mount Nittany, thinking a Nittany Lion was like a whole ass other <laughs> type of lion. Like it had special qualities because they thought they made me think that. And now you can come and visit me and go to the lion shrine. My neighbors across the street have a mini lion shrine in their front yard. And it's a Nittany lion, like despite the sure. fact that it's just a lion. And then if you're a woman, you know, the bas- women's basketball team here are the lady lions, despite the fact <laughs> that lions are already ladies. <laughs> it's just, I don't. <laughs> oh my God. It's oh weird, man. Well, Brenda? Oh, wow. Um, I just wanted to say that there are occasionally some, like, amazing twists of fate when it comes to mascot because, like, years and years ago, Hofstra took on the pride, which were two lines. Mm. So there's a, a – there's a, <laughs> from no particular place. Nor is Long Island known for having <laughs> any lions whatsoever, but whatever. So there's – they have like a name to like Kate and Willie or something. And there's like, like the a royal male and a couple? female. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. But the one thing oh that's cool is that the Pride Network at Hofstra for LGBT community has used that. And now the whole school has like very much embraced that. So it's kind of like a wow. cool mascot that's turned into now like a a slogan you know what i mean that's kind of cool that's the only instance Mm. in which i'm like i can get on board with that well i went to nyu and we were the fighting violets so that was (laughs) (laughs) oh my god stop well i have one more to to top that my favorite random mascot belongs to university of north carolina oh ncsa that's where i'm from absolutely no idea i'm terrified their mascot is the legendary fighting pickle. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm sorry. I am now speaking from the grave. <laughs> it just reminds me like you ate a the bad fighting pickle. pickle. And the funniest part about it is that they don't actually have no, really they don't have they anymore. <laughs> Why do so they have a mascot? A, well, painting you know, competition? I don't know. <laughs> So uh, yeah, Peter oh, the oh, fighting pickle. Oh my god! Um, 
and I will have to link a picture to it because it is terrifying and not I'm not just saying that as somebody who abhors pickles, but just like generally. It's like a pickle who's like also an artist and he has like a goatee and like a a little like French hat on his head and a tutu made of piano string, like piano keys, and it's just I'm crying. Yeah. I'm crying. Yeah. <laughs> but is anyways, there a, now here's my real question. <laughs> for is there a lady pickle? <laughs> Sorry. Right. See, we should look at it because it wouldn't surprise me, Lindsay. It wouldn't surprise me at all because we all know things are like fundamentally oh, made. I mean, especially until pickles, you put a pink so, bow you know. <laughs> Sorry, we've got. Please, please move on, Amira. Please move on. All right. It is time for everyone's favorite subject the burn pile. Brenda, what are you burning this week? This was such a fruitful week in terms of burns. I mean, I feel like the whole world is on fire. But what I decided to pick was University of Iowa's pay increases for its football coaches. I do this every year, sometime in August, which is to complain about the salaries in the athletics department. And so what Iowa is paying, it's 10 on-field assistant coaches is $5,490,000. An assistant, yeah, that means strength coaches are making $800,000. I just want to tell you that an assistant, I looked up from the University of Iowa, their own data, and the last data is like 2015, and an assistant professor with a PhD in hand, average salary $61,000. So I do it every year. I'm not going to stop burning it. This is bullshit. You can can you not tell me that an assistant professor, someone who has spent 12 years like studying one particular, you know, important piece of whatever, that you need that many of them could not do what a strength coach could do? I don't mean to like disrespect their profession, but it's disrespectful to my profession that that's the pay differential between us between a strength coach and what we do. So, mm. and of course, of course, right? The athletes are making zero. So right. there's nothing worse than that. <laughs> At least the assistant professors get which is why 61,000. Which is why these coaches are getting so much money cuz the money right. has to go somewhere so they can say they don't have enough money to pay well, the players. It's, it's, no, Sorry. I mean it's totally you get people can get in on this burn. I mean it's just No, I mean I I will throw that in cuz it reminds me of I don't know if everybody's seen the new pictures oh, yeah. of LSU's souped up locker room. Oh yeah. I mean, their individual lockers look like the first class little cabins on like Qatar Airlines where you have like your TV and your lounge, your your seat that fully reclined. Like it's wild, right? It's absolutely wild. Meanwhile, their library is flooded. Right. Right. Their library literally has water on it. it totally. Going for manuscripts and no money for refurbishment of that. And, it, you know, I'll link the pictures because when you see them side by side, you're just like, yo. It just, it's, yeah. So, Brenda, burn it. Yeah. I just want to burn the exorbitant salaries in the face of austerity when it comes to actual education and paying the players nothing and paying professors of that institution not very much either. Don't 
make it about a university. Most of those fans didn't go there. Most of those fans don't understand the workings of that institution. Just make it a professional sport or make it a real thing. So burn. 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 Linz, what are you burning? Okay, so as I mentioned at the top of the show, Las Vegas did a really great job hosting the WNBA All-Star Game. Um, the athletes were all treated really well. They did a lot of recruiting to get a lot of other WNBA stars to come. It was remarkable. One thing, however, that the WNBA turned down, it turns out, head co- Las Vegas Aces coach Bill Lambeer came out this week and noted that he tried to get the WNBA All-Stars, the 22 best female basketball players in the world, first class flights to the all-star game. Mm. And he had budgeted $20,000 in the law in their budget for this. The WNBA turned this down saying it would be a competitive advantage. Oh my God. What? This is just for the all-stars. This wasn't saying for Las Vegas aces players all year round. This was just for these all-stars for this, flight to and flight from Mm. Vegas for this one thing. And, you know, it just really reeks of uh, we're in CBA negotiations. I think it was Deborah Peters, a former WNBA player who kind of said this reeks of we're in W we are in contract negotiations and we do not want these players to get too comfortable. So look, I don't usually get bent out about people being in first class or not, but this just seems so petty and so stupid and just so ridiculous. So just throw it on the burn pile. So this week, after suspending a decision in June in a Swiss court that would have allowed Castor Semenya to compete in defend her world, her title in the 800 meters at Worlds in September, this week, the Swiss judge reversed the earlier ruling um, and ruled that Castor could not compete without taking testosterone reducing medication. And a major blow to her aspirations to keep running, to the legal case, and basically upholding the IAF's policy that we've talked about before, the meanness of it, the targeting of it, the ludicrous way that they talk about Castor. They, unsurprisingly, seeming pile of shit, inhaled this decision as a victory for, quote, parody and clarity. And it was heartbreaking because Castor, you know, took to Twitter to say, well, this closes one chapter of my life onto the second chapter. While her and her legal team did also release a statement saying, you know, she was disappointed from not being able to defend her title, but she will continue to fight for the human rights of all female athletes concerned. But it feels like we're getting towards the end of legal recourse that her and her legal team have. and. It just, I'm fired up to burn it, but really I'm just heartbroken. And I hate that. I hate what they're doing to her and I want to burn it down. Burn. Burn. Sad, sad, sad burn. After all that burning, it's time to shout out some remarkable women this week. Honorable mentions. Stephanie Frapper who on August 14th will become the first female referee in major UEFA men's showcase. So in the UEFA Super Cup, Liverpool and Chelsea are playing on August 14th, and that's where Stephanie will make her appearance and break that particular glass ceiling. Congrats to you, Stephanie. 
Also, a super special shout out to Team USA gold medalist Delilah Muhammad, who last weekend broke the 400 meter hurdles record at the USTA track and field championships with a time of 52.2 seconds. Despite it being raining, she outpaced the previous record that was held for 16 year old record in the rain. She broke it with a time of 52.34 seconds. Absolutely phenomenal. Congrats to you. Simone Manuel became the first American woman to win a second straight world title in the 100-meter freestyles at World Championships. She also set a new American record, serving up a dose of black girl magic for you. Congrats, Simone. And Miranda Ransom is the first female president of Ice Hockey Australia. And we want to send a very special honorable mention to Ashley Wagner. The U.S. Olympic figure skater came forward this week about being sexually abused by John Coughlin when she was just 17 years old. Coughlin, if you remember, was a U.S. para skater who was popular and powerful in figure skating community. He committed suicide in January after the news broke that he was suspended from the sport while Safe Sport investigated these allegations of sexual abuse. Thank you for your bravery, Ashley, and for coming forward this week with your story. And now, a drum roll, please. Our badass woman of the week goes to Khadija Mela, the 18-year-old who won the Magnolia Cup. She's the first hijab-wearing woman to ride in a competitive British horse race. Congrats to you, Khadija. We see you out there shining, and you are our badass woman of the week. What is good in your life, Lindsay? What is good for me is I've been at the city open all week. And so it's been, I've been, it's been an exhausting week. I came straight from Vegas and feature writing and uh, too many uh, deadlines to this week, which has been the city open, uh, which is tennis. But I've gone straight from work to tennis and been away from my apartment for like 18 hours a day every day this week because I never get to see live tennis anymore. And I have honestly loved every second of it. So yeah, it's been fun week, but I'm also now excited to get back to somewhat of a routine. And also, if I owe you a phone call, I'm sorry, especially you, mom, even mm-hmm. though I know you don't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Bren, what are you? What's good? Well, first, I think Lindsay's mom, we love you anyway, but please do listen to this. And She doesn't know uh, what podcasts are. I've tried. I've tried so many times. <laughs> um, what's good is that I am in Nashville, Tennessee. Woo. I was in Memphis yesterday. Highly recommend Civil Rights Museum over Graceland if I have to just uh, oh. throw that out there. Hands down. Oof, that was a uh, Graceland is a, a tough trip through narcissism, but also <laughs> fascinating. So I'm here with my siblings celebrating my brother's 29th birthday and my sister's pregnancy. And so I love my siblings and I'm very happy to be scouting out Nashville for Burn It All Down, who will be doing a live performance here next month. So that is very, very good. That's awesome. My what's good is short and sweet. My, My girl is back from camp. I got two letters in two weeks, which is like, uh, must be a record because she never writes home that much. Although one letter was just like, I was so sick. And that was not really helpful. But she got home at one in the morning (laughs) and immediately started talking a mile a minute about camp and people I have no idea who they are and showing me her 
thing she's weaving and her like fake camp tattoos and the shirt that she cut into a crop top because I guess that's where we are now. Oh man, Amira. Um, <laughs> it's a lot. And so, you know, immediately within five minutes, I was like, oh yeah, I remember now preteen hormones and sass and all of this stuff. But there was five glorious minutes where I was just so happy to have my baby girl back. And she like hugged me and we were, it was just like, I miss her when she's gone. And watching the dog and her brothers greet her is also the cutest thing in the world. And they didn't videotape it. Like I'm failing as a millennial parent, but trust me, it was freaking adorable. So that's my what's good. So that's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Thank you all for tuning in. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate the show, recommend it wherever you listen. We also are on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. We're on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You also can check out our website for information about the show, links, transcripts for each episode. It's burnitalldownpod.com. From the website, you can email us directly. If you want to be in touch, we'd love to hear from you. We always enjoy listener mail. Also, a special shout out to our Patreons. You guys um, have given us so much support and we adore you. We love you. Thank you so much for that continued support. Go check out that Patreon page. You'll see the first ever Behind the Burn vlog series. Plus, enter for a chance to win our monthly giveaway. Just as a reminder, from now until Labor Day weekend, treat yourself to some buy ad merchandise using the code BURN15. Get 15% off all of your flamethrowing gear. So again, from me, Amir Rose Davis, Brenda Elsie, and Lindsay Gibbs, burn on, not out, flamethrowers, and we'll see you next week.